Matthew chapter 8 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning in verses 14 through 27. And so if you guys want to turn there, I'd really appreciate it if you had Bibles in front of you this morning. If you do not have a paper Bible and you're old school like that, we have Bibles on that table over there. You're more than welcome to take one of those. Um, We'll have it on the screens. You have it on your phone. Multiple ways to access it. But I just encourage you guys to actually have your Bibles open. And as we're going through the Word whether that's be making notes to yourself or reading it with your own eyes, I think it's really important as we study his word. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Jesus, uh, it is a privilege to be here this morning with your church. God, I thank you for each individual in this room. God, I know that you see directly into their hearts. You know exactly what's going on in their lives, and you also know how it is that your word applies to what their life is experiencing. And so this morning... Uh, Lord, as we study your word, I pray that you'd speak to us. We invite you into this place. Lord, you are not some distant God up in the sky, but you are a God who is present and here with us now through your spirit. And so we ask you, Jesus, come and have your way in this place. I pray for those in this room who got drugged here this morning that have no idea why they're here. Um, God, I pray that your word would speak to their hearts this morning and that they'd have some understanding as to why it is they're here this morning. And I pray for us this morning, God, that as we open up your word, um, your, your word promises that your word does not return void, that it goes out and it accomplishes the work that you intended for it to do. And so this morning, as we read it, we come with expectation, Lord, that your word would do something in us and would change us and transform us. And so have your way, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Awesome. So this morning, we'll be picking up back up in our study in the book of Matthew. And we're going to be, last week we were in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. This morning we'll cover 14 through 27. And so when you're there, if you can say word with me. Word? Okay, you're there. Matthew 8, verse 14. says this. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And he touched her hand. And the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose this great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him up saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? All right, there's your Bible reading for the week, you guys. Good job. Uh, The other day I was thinking about what it's been like to be a dad. The older my kids get, the more I, I contemplate this, because I'm literally just watching them grow up before my eyes specifically my oldest, watching him become this young man and soon to be adult. Um, And I realize that there's some of you in this room that have been fathers, 
much longer than I have, and so I really don't presume to know everything about fatherhood. But there's one thing that I actually do know, one thing, there's only one thing that I actually do know about fatherhood, is that nothing could have prepared me for this. Nothing could have prepared me to be a dad. I've come to realize that that I could have gone to all the Christian conferences and tried to learn about fatherhood. I could have read all the Christian books on parenting, and I still would not have been prepared for what fatherhood has thrown at me. It wouldn't have prepared me for sleepless nights and dirty diapers and tantrums by toddlers and puberty and now teenagehood and all the things that that we go through as fathers. And there's just no way for me to be prepared for it. There's nothing on earth that could prepare me for something like this. And honestly, most of life, if you think about it, is actually like this, right? We get married. Did all of you have it figured out when you got married? You didn't? What the heck? Why did you get married? Uh, we, don't have, we get married and we don't have it figured out. We don't know what we're giving, getting ourselves into, but we commit to learning along the way. We develop friendships with others, and we don't have it all figured out. We don't know what we're getting ourselves into, but we learn along the way. When it comes to our jobs, think about it. How many of you knew all about your job and exactly what it entailed and had it all figured out on day one of the job? There's just no way. You get into your vocations, and you figure it out. You learn as you go. And this is really true of the Christian life. For those who follow Jesus... We've actually been compelled to follow after him. Something is compelling us to follow. He's called us into relationship with him to be his followers, to be his disciples. And there's something about Jesus that draws us in. And so we follow him. And you follow Jesus because there's something about him, again, that that compels you to go after him, to follow him, to be like him. But, but you soon learn as a follower of Jesus, if you're, if you're new to this, you've, you're learning now. If you've been around for a while, you learned this years ago. But you learn that you don't know everything, right? Anybody in here that has it all figured out when it comes to following Jesus? You soon learn that you don't know everything. And in fact, you actually learn that you don't know anything. I mean, at, at 41, I'm going like, do I really even understand this? You know, I feel maybe um, not confused, but at 41, I'm like, dang, I, I don't really have an understanding of this like I would have hoped to at 41 years old. But I'm learning along the way, and each of life's circumstances as I go through them in my life continue um, to point me back to Jesus and teach me how to follow him in some new territory that I'd never entered into before in my life. And so you don't really know what you've got yourself into. And so you realize you have to literally sit at the feet of Jesus, figuratively, like sit with him. You have to listen to him. You have to listen to him tell you what it means to follow him. And that's what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 8. After this Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached, Jesus has just spent all of this time expounding on kingdom life for his followers and what it looks like to bring the kingdom to bear on this earth, what it looks like for his kingdom to come here. And then the first teaching we get from Jesus after this sermon is what it means to be his followers in verses 18 through 22. And we have to learn along the way because being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, doesn't come naturally to us. It wasn't something we were just naturally built to do. It's something we learn to do and we are compelled to do. We follow after him and we learn to be more like him. It's not something that just clicks for us. 
You don't just get it. But once we become a Christian, we've actually been compelled into this relationship with him. And so we have to learn from Jesus as we walk on this journey, this pilgrimage with him, and we're learning along the way. And so what is it that we learn? What do, what do we learn? And this sort of begs the question, like, what are the marks of a follower of Jesus? And I won't get into all of them this morning, but what are the characteristics of somebody that has literally sat with Jesus and has been led by him? Like, after you've been compelled to be in relationship with him and you start moving, what is it that a Christian learns along the way as you follow him? What are the marks, the, 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 the points at which you're, you're learning along the way? And the first mark that we can see here in verses 18 through 20 is this, is that Jesus' followers relinquish all their earthly securities. All of this stuff here, Jesus' followers surrender and give up. And you see this as the scribe comes to Jesus and he calls Jesus what? Anybody? He calls him teacher, right? He, he says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And so here's this guy, he's there, he's, he's present, he's with Jesus, he's willing, and he's offering his allegiance to Jesus. And this is the guy you think you want on your team, isn't it? When, you, when somebody comes to you and says, dude, I'll go with you wherever you go, you're like, you're on my team. You'll listen to everything I say and do exactly what, I mean, this is the guy that Jesus wants. But the problem is there's something kind of strange about the pledge that this guy's making. And so understand that at this point, in the book of Matthew, and in, just in the gospel of Matthew alone, no one has yet come to Jesus and offered themselves. So Jesus is calling them out. Nobody's offered them. Nobody ha has yet come to Jesus and said, like, I'll follow you. Jesus has been the one calling people out, calling them out of their vocations, out of their comfortable lifestyles to follow after him. And so look at this. When people actually come to Jesus, what are they doing? They're asking him to work. Because they, they don't profess to follow him. They actually say things like, Jesus, will you do something? Hey, Jesus, will you heal this person? Hey, Jesus, will you cast out a demon? And so they're coming to Jesus in desperate need of Jesus, but what we hear here is this offer, and, and this guy's giving Jesus his offer of allegiance, and it seems a little bit presumptuous because he calls him teacher, which is interesting to note because when the disciples address Jesus in the book of Matthew, he's always referred to as Lord in the book of Matthew. And so the people that address Jesus, if you go do a word search in the book of Matthew and see where the word teacher is used, it's always used in reference to the scribes or the Pharisees referring to Jesus as teacher. Because the disciples call him Lord in the book of Matthew. And, and so it's those who don't necessarily acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, those who don't acknowledge him as the Messiah, those the, the, these are the people that refer to him as teacher in the book of Matthew. And so this is sort of this kind of presumptuous offer from the scribe. It's sort of as if the scribe thinks Jesus needs his help in order to have some sort of ministry success of his own. Or worse, he sees Jesus as this amazing teacher and this great rabbi, and he maybe wants to piggyback on Jesus' ministry and get a little taste of what Jesus is offering. And so the, the scribe is using Jesus to do what? 
to try to get ahead in life. He's using Jesus as, as a step on, on the sort of the proverbial religious ladder. And the scribe is using Jesus for his own gain. And, and his eagerness to follow Jesus actually sort of disguises his ambition. And so this is a real temptation for ministry leaders like myself. Whether you're in a church serving in leadership or you're in some sort of parachurch ministry, the temptation for ministry leaders is to think that if we follow Jesus correctly, everything will be successful. If I do the right things, money will come in, people will come, people will give their life, like all these these marks that we consider success will happen when I do the right things. And so it's, it's the temptation of a follower of Jesus to think that if we follow Jesus, in exchange we get comfort. And in exchange we get security. And in exchange we get this ease of life. And so we become convinced that if we follow him properly, we'll be successful. And so people want to follow Jesus because Jesus gives them success. And Jesus' response is actually very profound. He says this, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so this response kind of pushes back on the very thing that the scribe believes Jesus will give him, success and comfort. And here's what Jesus is teaching the scribe and what I think Jesus is teaching you and I this morning, that to follow him means that we relinquish our earthly security and trust in God with all aspects of our life, with everything. And so my question for you this morning is this, are you following Jesus because you think he'll take you somewhere, that that he's going to take you somewhere in this life and provide you with comfort and success and with security and tranquility? Are you following him out of ambition or are you following him out of humility? Which is it? What motivates you? What compels you to follow Jesus this morning? Is it what you can get or do get from him? Or is it the humility in him in you that just wants to sit in his presence and follow him even when you hit the mountains and the valleys of your life? Look at verses 21 through 22. So the, the, the first mark of, uh, of Jesus' followers is that we relinquish these earthly securities And the second is this, that we remain fiercely loyal. Fiercely loyal. If you look at verses 21 and 22, this is a really interesting request. And actually kind of a hard, difficult response from Jesus. So one of his disciples, a guy known as a disciple as it's stated, he's not a scribe, he's not a Pharisee, he's somebody who Jesus has called and who has committed his life to following him. And he says to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father is his response. And this sounds kind of like a reasonable request, doesn't it? Like, his father has died, and so doesn't it seem reasonable that he'd be like, "Uh, hold on a second, my dad's died, let me go bury my dad, and then we'll sort of pick back up and I'll follow after you. And and even actually according to God's law, like, it seems reasonable for him to want to go bury his dad, because according to God's law, it was proper for him to honor his mother and father. 
And his request is actually in agreement with what it means to be a good citizen and caring for the deceased after they've passed on. And it's also even in agreement with Jewish custom. There would be this time of mourning after you buried your family member. And so if you take Jesus' response at face value, Jesus' response to leave the dead to bury the dead actually seems like a cut against the grain of all of um, uh, uh, of all of these uh, of Jewish culture. And so it, it seems to cut against the grain of God's law. It sort of cuts against the grain of goodness and kindness and custom. And we have to remember that Jesus sees below the surface of things, doesn't he? He understands the heart. Jesus sees below the surface to the depths of what the guy's actual request is. And Jesus' response kind of shows that he sees something in this disciple that's causing him to hesitate. Uh, let me go bury my dad first. And it, it's kind of interesting because Jesus sees something that's sort of compromising his allegiance to his Savior. There's something holding him up. There's something compromising his allegiance to Jesus and to his lordship. And it's almost as if Jesus picks up on like insecurities and, and sort of... Uh, 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 insincerity in this disciple. And what's interesting is that Jesus sort of sees the man's request as this kind of qualified commitment to his lordship. So if your response to Jesus is like this, I will follow you, but let me first go and X in your life. I will follow you, let me do that, but first let me go do this. I would say this morning you have a compromised allegiance to Jesus. There's something that's qualifying your allegiance to him. So you need to do something else before there's something you want to accomplish. How many of you said, um, maybe when you were younger, man, if I could just get married before Jesus comes back, that would be so awesome, right? Jesus, please don't come back until I'm able to get married and have kids. Jesus, please don't come back until, you know, I make my, my first six-figure check. Jesus, please don't come back until I have all my fun and do all of my things. Um, Jesus, I'll give my life to you after I've had all my fun and had my heyday and I'm sort of spent and done with that and now I want to get serious about following. So we do this all the time in our life. We give these sort of qualifying remarks to Jesus. I will follow you if I get this for me first. And this is what Jesus is pushing back against. Like you can't have Jesus one day and something or someone else the next. There's no room for compromised allegiance. Jesus calls us as followers to a fierce loyalty to him and him alone. His lordship, him as savior, him as Messiah. I heard this story um, about Babe Ruth's last season as a professional baseball player. Any baseball fans in the house? Maybe some of you know the story. His last season as a baseball player was in, anybody not know who Babe Ruth is? Maybe we should start there. Please leave. No. Um, <laughs> Babe Ruth's last season as a professional baseball player was 1935. And so Babe Ruth's career spanned like over two decades, 22 years, from 1914 to 1935. I mean, what, a, what an amazing career. One of the best baseball players to live, like, of all time. But in his 1935 season, after spending the majority of his career with the Yankees, he, he made a switch and he got traded to the Boston Braves at the time. And at this point, Babe Ruth is obviously getting older. He's 40 years old. He wasn't playing like he was in his 20s and 30s, like, which for a professional athlete, like, 40 is 
quite old. I'm not trying to offend you 40-plus-year-olds in this room. But uh, you don't play like you used to. I don't know if you know that. Your back hurts a little bit more, and your knees ache, and your hips hurt. You can't run as fast, and you get winded easier. That just happens with old age. (laughs) And Babe Ruth was a champ. 40 years old, he's still going. But at 40, he was obviously on his way out of baseball. Like he was struggling in his career. And in, in one particular game in 1935, they're playing against the Cincinnati Reds. And he has this terrible game, like this horrid game. In one inning, he basically had enough errors piled up to cost the Braves five runs and they lose the game. And so as Babe is walking off the field, he hangs his head in shame and he's walking off. I mean, you, you got to sort of feel it with him. It's sort of maybe like Tom Brady felt last weekend, right? Um, but uh, uh, you sort of can feel what he's feeling, like defeated. He's the champ, the best of all time, and he just had the worst game ever, and he just cost his team five runs and a loss. Like, maybe I should have called it quits a year earlier type thing, right? But as he walks off the field and he's hanging his head, you can hear the stands, like, booing him. Like, people are mocking him. They're ridiculing him. Uh, and they're, they're literally mocking the best baseball player to walk the earth, to have ever played. And so the, the next thing you know, you see this little boy jumps over the fence and he runs out on the, fe- on the field with tears streaming down his face and he runs over to Babe and he hugs his leg in the midst of people mocking the best baseball player of all time. This little boy just latches onto Babe's leg. And this little boy puts all these people to shame. <laughs> this little boy remained faithful to his favorite baseball player even when life got bad and things got rough like fierce loyalty. This little boy, the message in the message for us is that this little boy remained faithful. Even when life seems to contradict what we believe, what we hoped for, as Joey would say, God is still in control, right? And he calls for fierce loyalty. We have no room for compromised allegiances. We have no room and no time for mockery we latch on to Jesus. And so I, I know this, it all sounds really exciting and, and powerful to, to give our lives to Jesus like this and to offer him this fierce loyalty. But it's also really overwhelming because if we're honest, we're, we're kind of both the scribe and the Pharisee, aren't we, at times? We're both of these people. We, we offer Jesus our allegiance with, with a little bit of ambition and sort of a hint of hesitancy. I'm totally committed to you, Lord, and I'm gung-ho, but, uh, and and so we're a little hesitant, but we profess to be all in, and so we become the scribe and this disciple. And as I thought about this, I wondered, what would compel us to follow Jesus with the type of tenacity that Jesus is calling for? What, What would it take to compel you like that in your life? And there's two reasons that we can see in this passage that we should follow Jesus with tenacity and fierce loyalty. The first is this. As we talked about last week, that Jesus speaks with the authority of God. He's not a man. He's not some teacher. 
He's not some prophet. He's God. So if you look at verses 23 through 27, you see this super intense story with Jesus, and he's calming the storm with his word, it says, which is so awesome. And the majority of time, I think we, we look at the story, and we tend to focus on what aspect of the story. If you grew up in the church, you studied this passage, like, I have always heard this taught, that the point was that the disciples lacked faith. And so when we read this story, we tend to focus on these guys who don't get it. These guys who just haven't quite understood. And when Jesus calls to them, oh, you of little faith, that becomes the thing that we focus on in the story. But here's what I'm realizing. The more I read and reread this passage, like if we focus on that, we actually miss the point of the passage. Because the point of the passage is not challenging the disciples' faith. That's not the objective of this passage. It's definitely a minor point in this passage, but it's not the main point. The, the point of the f- passage is what? It's to actually emphasize the authority and the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? Who is he? And so read this with me, verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Great storm, great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? So check this out. You have these disciples who've committed themselves to Jesus. They've been called out of their vocations into this new vocation of following him. But along the way, as they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, the storm rolls in. It's evening time. Uh, It it seems to be this quick storm because obviously if you saw a storm coming, you wouldn't go get in the boat, right? So obviously it brewed pretty fast. And so it's a storm that, that rolls in quick. And it's not just a storm Matthew refers to it as a great storm. So remember that some of these disciples were fishermen, weren't they? Some of them knew what it was to be out on the open sea. They were skilled in fishing and in boating. They knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand. (coughs) And the sea was known for these violent, sudden storms that would arise. It's interesting because even though the the Sea of Galilee, uh, it's not a sea, it's actually a lake, and it, it sits within this bowl of large hills and mountains. It sort of sits really low in the midst of all these mountains in this sort of valley. And with the Sea of Valley, the, the surface of the water at the Sea of Galilee is almost 700 feet below sea level. Really odd setup here. And so you, you've get, you get hot air that sits on top of the surface of the water, and then it mixes with the cool air that comes off the mountains, and it creates this really turbulent, like dangerous storms that can arise on the sea. And the storm was particularly dangerous, like so intense that these men who were trained as boaters and as fishermen call for help from a guy who was what? Trained as a carpenter. (laughs) Like the, the fishermen are going like, save us, grab your hammer, you know, do something to take care of this. Jesus would have been more helpful to them if there were holes in the boat, right? In their minds. But it's a storm, and these disciples are saying, Lord, save us. Like, we're literally, we're dying, we're perishing. So I want you to put yourself in this scene. 
If you're like me, you got to immerse yourself in this. This lake is eight miles wide. So let's say they're four miles out in the middle of this lake. It's getting dark. They know they can't make it to shore. And historically, Jews had a great fear of deep water. Most Jews couldn't swim. And the sea in, in Jewish culture always represented chaos and hell. So they were deeply afraid of deep water. So even when they fished, they would often fish like 100 yards off of the shore. And so they're out in the deep waters in the midst of the storm, and it's getting dark. So it's evening, the storm rages, they can't swim. You've all grown up fearing the exact scenario that you're put in. Who wouldn't be freaked out in this room? But I often think we read the story and we sort of go, oh man, stupid disciples. You guys are so dumb. It's a lake. It wasn't, it wasn't that bad. I've been out on Lake Coeur in the middle of a storm, you know, like some white caps. You guys are all a bunch of wusses. But I want you to put yourself in their shoes. They're literally saying as fast as they can, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And they're able to call on Jesus for help. Why? Why could these guys call on Jesus to help them? What did they know of Jesus at this point? They didn't call on him because he was a carpenter. They called on him because Jesus had already proven himself up to this point. They watched him work miracles. They, he, he had spoken a word and people were healed. And so what does Jesus do? He speaks a word to the wind and to the sea as if the wind and the sea were like living creatures themselves and they obey Jesus. And so Jesus replaces this great storm that Matthew refers to with this great storm with what kind of calm? Read that passage. Not just calm, a great calm. He replaces the great storm with a great calm. And I don't know about you, but when I read this, it makes me think back <laughs> to Genesis chapter 1, that when God made the heavens and the earth, that the earth was without form and it was void and there was darkness covering the face of the deep and God speaks and he says, let there be light and there was light. And it's incredible that, that when God speaks, creation can't do anything else but listen to him. In fact, it has to listen because it has to obey his voice because he is the one that created it. And so what happens? Jesus speaks a word and creation listens. Creation obeys because he speaks from the authority of God. And if he speaks with that kind of authority, you have nothing to worry about. So when relinquishing our earthly security, you have nothing to worry about. Who's ultimately in charge here? It's the Lord Jesus. When, when giving Jesus all of your allegiance and remaining fiercely loyal to Jesus, you have nothing to fear about. Why? Because he speaks with the, the authority of God himself. And so I, I told you I'd give you two reasons to follow Jesus with tenacity and fierce loyalty. The first was because he speaks with authority. The second reason we see is in verses 14 through 17, if you guys would turn there. And really even in the whole first half of chapter 8. But the reason is this. I love this. That Jesus actually loves with the compassion of God. He speaks with the authority of God, and he loves with the compassion of God. And so he, he, he not only speaks with God's authority, but he also loves with God's compassion. So in verses 14 through 17, Peter's mother-in-law is laying there sick with a fever. 
And we sort of tend to gloss over the fact that she had a fever as if fevers just really weren't a big deal. In the first century, fevers were a massive deal. I mean, I know fevers are a fairly big deal now, but not nearly like they were then. They didn't have modern medicine to deal with them to help curb the symptoms of the fevers. They didn't have modern medicine to help them curb uh, the, the common cold symptoms or even the common cold, let alone flu or malaria. Like the flu was a big, or the, uh, a fever was a big deal. And so some people would survive fevers. Some people would die from fevers. Maybe after like four or five days of having a fever, they could die. And what we see here is not that Jesus cleans his hands with hand sanitizer, stays on the other side of the room, but what we see here is that Jesus touches her. Like, you gotta see this. Did he have to touch her to heal her? Did he? Are you guys with me? Did he have to touch her to heal her? No. He chooses to touch her. Even with a fever, he touches her, and she's healed. And not only does he heal her, But people start bringing their friends from all over, and Jesus heals them. And it says that in the evening, (laughs) they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. And not only that, but just before this, he heals this leper like we had talked about last week. So not only does he speak the word, but he actually touches this leper, and then right after that, he heals this centurion's servant like we talked about last week. But he does it just by saying the word. So what we see here is that these are displays of Jesus' authority. And that Jesus has power over creation. He has power over sickness. He has power over illness and disease. He even has power over demons in the spirit realm because he speaks with the authority of God. And it's not only that, but we get this glimpse into the compassion, the heart of God as well. That, that he's in the business of taking our illnesses. That, that Jesus was in the business of bearing our diseases. That the gospel overlay here is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost and to heal the brokenhearted and to bind up their wounds. That, that he came to heal the brokenness of humanity because he has the compassion of God. Like he actually cares. He doesn't just have authority. He isn't just God, but he actually cares. He's actually with you. And so church, not only does Jesus have power to care for you, he also has the love and the compassion to care for you as well. Is that not awesome? He has affection for you. He actually desires to bind up your wounds, to ultimately take those wounds upon himself so that you be freed from them. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases, as it says in the book of Isaiah. And on occasion, I like to think about discipleship and following Jesus. And I go and I'm always like looking for ways to study and read about other people that were passionate about discipleship and following Jesus in prior generations. And and there's this, anybody in here read Mere Christianity? There's this passage, there's this um, section of Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis says this, he says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building 
quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. Isn't that awesome? And you see, the Christian life is very similar. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. <clears throat> but the Christian life is similar. God calls us into relationship with him. And he compels us to follow him. And at first you think you know what you've gotten yourself into. Like, I, I think I've figured it out and I'm ready to jump all in. You think you know who Jesus is and then along the way, you discover something completely different. You discover that God has called you to let go of your security, to let go of your ambition, to trust him with everything you have and to remain fiercely loyal to him and him alone. But you don't only learn what's required of you, you actually discover who Jesus is in the process. In this journey of following Jesus, you discover that he has much more authority than you could ever have first anticipated. And not only that, that he's infinitely more loving than you could ever have imagined. And you discover all of this along the way, don't you? Through the ups and the downs of life, you discover it along the way as you consistently walk with him. It's this journey, we're in process. As I was reading through this passage this week, it was a really interesting day yesterday. I, um, one of the guys who used to skate, skateboard with the ministry that we were involved in, that uh, lived with us and we knew him really well, his father overdosed about two months ago and died. And they had a really weird relationship and so he asked me to come officiate his dad's funeral. And so I'm literally in Spokane at two o'clock officiating a funeral for this man and then driving out to Jacob Maxwell's wedding at 4.30 to witness a wedding. It's a really interesting kind of dichotomy. But as I was uh, reading through this passage and I was even studying to do this funeral, something hit me in this chapter that's never hit me before. And maybe it's hit you. But it became really apparent to me particularly with the portion of the story where Jesus calms the storm, that, that we'll often read the story and we'll end it there. And this is what we'll pray. We'll end the story there. We'll pray, Jesus, would you please give us more faith? And Jesus, um, would you calm the storms in my life? Amen. But I want to mess with your theology a little bit this morning. Who here believes that Jesus had the authority to calm the wind and the sea? If you don't, that's okay. The majority of you, pretty much, thank you, Ka. I'm glad you think that. You, you have to think that. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. So if he calms the wind and the sea, who was it that told the sea to rage in the first place? Isn't that crazy to think about? The wind and the sea obeyed him. Meaning he actually told it to rage while they were in it. Meaning there was kind of the setup for the Lord of this teachable moment 
with his disciples. And Jesus sort of ordained these teachable, life-changing moments for his disciples. And many of you actually find yourself in one of those teachable, life-changing moments right now. If you trust Jesus, then you actually trust, as C.S. Lewis wrote in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, about Aslan. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather, feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And if you trust him, then you trust that he's both able to enact the storm and he's able to calm the storm. That the great storm he caused to arise and the great storm he caused to diminish. And the amazing part of the story is that knowing he was causing the great storm to rise, Jesus in the flesh chooses to be in the boat in the midst of the storm. Is that not crazy? Knowing that his life was equally in danger, as much danger as his disciples, he chooses to be in the storm with them. And my encouragement to you this morning is that Jesus can enact the storm, Jesus can calm the storm, and Jesus is able to teach us through the storm. So my prayer is that you'll hold on to your Savior and you'll follow him. That you'll trust his authority. That you'll give him fierce loyalty with your life. Because he's worth it. And if you trust him, you trust him. Not just when things look like they're going to go your way. But you trust him when things don't. You guys stand with me. Why don't you bow your heads? I'm going to give a chance for some of you to respond this morning. So there's some of you in this room that literally find yourself in the midst of this storm right now. And you're spinning your wheels. Why, why, what about blah, 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 like going down the list of all these things. And what you failed to remember is he's with you in it. He's here. He's literally in our midst. We spend so much of our life freaking out about the uncertainty of what could happen. Not recognizing that he's with us in it. And wherever you're at this morning, whatever it is you're going through in life, may you be reminded this morning that you are not solo. He did not send you out on a solo mission to try to make the best of it that you can and to just do your best and make it through and truck through it and all will be good. He's with you in it, which means that as you're sitting at his feet in the midst of it, you have an opportunity to learn from him, to be shaped by him, to be taught by the greatest teacher to ever live this planet, live on this planet, Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, our Messiah, our one true Savior. So if you find yourself in the midst of it this morning, have peace, church. 
that he can enact it, he can stop it, and he can be with you in it. If you're here this morning, and you find yourself at a place in life where this resonates with your heart, you're just like, yep, I need the faith to trust him. you just look up and make eye contact with me this morning so I can pray for you? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you this morning. Thank you for being the authoritative one who can speak to creation and it has to obey you. We thank you for being the one who loves us more than we can ever ask or imagine. So we ask for your power, Jesus. We ask for the spirit to empower us to follow you with all of ourselves. I pray that we would not be the scribe or the disciple referenced in here that we would not be those who offer you our allegiance with some sort of hint of hesitancy. But we give you all of ourselves this morning, Jesus, because you are quite worthy of everything we have. And we ask, Jesus, that you take our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, Jesus, that it be lived in a way, that it be an aroma to you, Jesus, that we'd spend our lives in such a way that We're not running for religiosity's sake to do all the right things, but we want to serve, worship, walk with our Father Jesus. And so I pray for those who even looked up and made eye contact with me this morning. God, there's something going on in their heart. There's something you're addressing this morning. And I pray, Jesus, that you show up in the storm in their life right now, that you show up, Lord, that you remind them that Their faith is actually contingent on your strength to have that faith. And I pray that you'd give them the faith to wade through the storm, to trust that you're with them, to know, Jesus, that if it be your will, you can make the storm diminish. But Jesus, may the storms in our life not hinder us from following you. And so I pray your power come, that you empower and be with your church. But as we leave this building today, we don't leave here on a solo mission. We leave here with the power and the presence of the Most High God within us. And Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your life, to die on that cross on our behalf, to bear our sickness and our illness, our sin, Jesus, that it would be put upon your shoulders, that it would be satiated and taken care of in you so that we could walk in freedom liberated from the things that once bound us. And so I pray this morning, Jesus, that we'd live in that freedom, that we'd stop living as though we're still bound by it, but that you have died for it and you've actually liberated us from it. God, would you release us this morning in your name and would you go with us and empower us to walk this out with you, for you, next to you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. As we sing a couple worship songs here every week, We want to make sure that you use this time in such a way that you actually worship Jesus. 
Some of you have business to do with God this morning. Don't hesitate doing that as we sing to him. Some of you, you just need to worship because you're so caught up in the distractions of your life. You need to look above the mountains, set your eyes above the hills, and worship him this morning. Get your eyes off of your circumstances. And some of you this morning, you just have work to do with the Lord, to go to him. Maybe it's forgiveness that needs to be had. Maybe it's a joy and a peace that needs to be present in your life that's been taken from you. But as we worship this morning, may we worship as a response to God's word and what he's doing in our lives. Amen? If you need prayer this morning, we have some people at the table over there. Where, where did they go? Oh. <laughs> um, that would love to pray with you. If you want somebody to partner with your prayer, if you need a Bible, go get a Bible. If you're here and you just want to know what it means to follow Jesus, surrender your life to him, go see um, Roger and Kelly. But regardless, let's worship Jesus together. Let's set our eyes upon him this morning. God bless you guys.